Good morning. I want to welcome you to Redeeming Grace Baptist Church's Sunday morning worship service. Normally we'd be meeting uh, physically with one another, but the uh, concern this morning was the, the uh, ice concern and following snow. I don't know about where you live, but we definitely got the ice this morning and then snow on top of that. Very pretty, but uh, definitely not much moving by our house anyway. Um, anyway, I'm glad you're joining us. We're going to spend time in Acts chapter 19 this morning. So if you've been uh, meeting with us over the last few years, you know we've been slowly but surely working our way through uh, the book of Acts. We're coming to chapter 19, uh, verse 11. We are done with all the series on, on Christmas. And so now we're going to focus in back on chapter 19 of Acts. But before we get started, let's have a word of prayer and then we can examine this short text. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we are able to open your word. Thank you for the privilege we have of being able to hear from you and to know that your spirit is at work in our lives, opening our eyes to see, and I pray you'll help us to do so this morning. I pray that you will help us to comprehend uh, the uh, core of the message of this passage. I pray that you'll help us to recognize the truth, and Lord, I pray that you will, by your spirit, change us and draw us close to worship you. So glorify yourself this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 11 through 20. Uh, before we jump into the text and I read the text to you, it is interesting that this is a text that has oftentimes been used by certain groups within Christianity to, to practice some things that I would say are inappropriate and they're missing a very, very important um, a very important uh, uh, principle of interpretation of the scriptures. And that is, and I just want to say this before we get into the text itself, that is the uh, confusion between a descriptive passage and a prescriptive passage. Oftentimes what happens is we will read a descriptive passage in the scriptures and we will turn it around and make it prescriptive. And when we do that, we get in trouble very quickly. We either have to pick and choose which descriptive passages we want to make prescriptive, or we end up making all of them prescriptive, but that would get really weird because then we'd start walking on water, and, or at least trying. And we would start to uh, try to raise people from the dead, and we would do all sorts of interesting things. Um, and so we need to always, whenever we read the scriptures, we always need to think about, is this a descriptive passage or is it a prescriptive passage? Uh, when it's prescriptive, that means it's something that uh, we are called to very strongly. Descriptive passages, for the most part, many times, are not something we've, call, we've been called to. It's just material that's given to us, whether it is for color of the story or for... Uh, a, a lesson earlier or later that's going to come, or a variety of reasons, but we need to be careful how we handle descriptive passages. There are times when descriptive passages, however, become more valuable than just descriptive passages. And the reason why they typically do is because you'll find sometimes a descriptive passage that is describing things that are prescribed elsewhere. And so when they're describing things that are elsewhere prescribed, that becomes much more significant. What's interesting about today's text is we have both descriptive passages and descriptive passages that are connected to prescriptive passages elsewhere. With that in mind, let's jump into chapter 19, verse 11. We'll read through 20. You can follow along as I read, and then we're going to wander our way through the text and uh, try to discover what God is trying to communicate through Luke's writing here. And uh, then we'll see about applying it and closing on in prayer and moving on from there. So starting in verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the, hand of Paul, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the name who, uh, by, I'm sorry, by Jesus, um, by the Jesus who, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Seva were doing this, or Skeva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered them all, or mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all. Uh, and the name of the Lord was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them uh, and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the Lord, uh, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And that's our text this morning. Again, we're going to do what I've been doing all the way through the book of Acts. I'm not going to come up with a three points in a poem type of outline for the text. We're reading a story, so we're going to try to keep it as a story and work our way through it as a story and examine all the various parts to the story and uh, try to discover what Luke's trying to communicate. You'll notice right away in verse 11 that Luke records, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's interesting, and it goes on in verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them, 11 and 12. Interesting, um, uh, back, it, what we really have in 11 and 12 is the, the backstory or the, or the color of the story. God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. It's interesting how Luke describes it. The miracles of Paul are being done not by Paul, but by being done by God. That's very clear. God was doing extraordinary miracles. It's interesting also to note that God is doing extraordinary miracles. The term extraordinary is interesting in that they're extraordinary. In other words, it's almost like Luke is saying, listen, there's miracles, and then there's miracles. So what's happening here is extraordinary or extraordinary. They're unusual. This is not a norm, in other words. This is very much not the norm. That's important because of this description, prescription thing that we find in some uh, circles of what is called Christianity. And you see that more clearly in verse 12. It goes on, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases um, left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Again, it's a descriptive passage. It's very important. You'll notice that some people are even bringing handkerchiefs and aprons and touching his skin, and people are being healed. But remember, it, verse 11, it's extraordinary. That's number one. Number two, it's very important as we consider, as we already said, as we consider um, descriptive passages, descriptive statements in the scriptures, it's very important that we ask ourselves, are these statements merely descriptive or are they inexorably connected to other places in the scripture, whether it's in the same book or in other books of the Bible, where the command is uh, that this should happen? Very important. So when we read 11 and 12, we have to immediately ask ourselves, well, we got this great description going on, amazing description, extraordinary miracles God's doing by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons and are being touched by Paul and people are being healed by it. That's extraordinary, unusual. And so we ought to ask ourselves a really simple question. Should that be expected, number one, but more importantly today, number two, more importantly, is this type of thing that is described in 1911 and 12, is this event or are these events elsewhere prescribed to believers? Well, the obvious answer to that is no, they're not. It is not prescribed. It is described here, and it is described in, in, in a different way, but described in Acts chapter 5, for example. But they're both descriptions, and with regard to both descriptions, for the most part in the scriptures, it's devoid of prescription. So description that doesn't have a accompanying either in the context near the book that we're reading or far the rest of the scriptures, if we don't have prescription along with the description, it remains description. So just because this is happening with Paul in Ephesus does not mean that it should be expected to happen elsewhere. 
which is why you basically don't see it happening elsewhere. And then it also should be some, in the scriptures that is, and it is also something then, therefore, if there is no prescription, then we should not see it as something that we should be expected to be doing or our pastors should be expected to be doing. That is not to be. This is a description. It is a color of the story. It's establishing something. What it's basically doing, the description Luke gives here, in other words, is just establishing a trajectory for what comes afterwards. I don't want to spend too much time on that, but I just want to lay that out. The simple matter of fact is God's doing extraordinary miracles through the hands of Paul or by the hands of Paul. Sick people are being healed. Uh, evil spirits are coming out of people because of what God is doing, Paul being the instrument, the tool that God's using, 11 and 12. The reason why that's given is because the rest of the story, the reason why that description is given is because the rest of the story is hinging upon that or using that as the foundation to give the absolute instruction that comes later on. So verse 13, as Paul is doing this in 13 and following, there are some people who think that they can gain advantage by doing the same thing Paul's doing. And you see it in 13 and following. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus by whose, um, uh, over, who, over those who had evil spirits. We're going to stop right there at that comma. There are these Jewish exorcists, which tells us something about what's going on in Ephesus. There are Jewish people living in exorcist and people, Jewish people traveling through Ephesus that are Jewish in name, but in reality, they're not. They're not following the Old Testament teachings of God as laid out very clearly through the 39 books. Quite to the contrary, these people are running around, not itinerant Jewish people preaching Judaism, not itinerant Jewish preachers of the gospel. They are itinerant Jewish exorcists, which means they've, they are Jewish in name, but what they've really done is they've bought into the whole uh, demonic realm of worship. <clears throat> and these itinerant Jewish exorcists are traveling around. That's why they're itinerant. They're wandering, uh, and they're doing exorcisms everywhere they go. They decided that it's almost as if what, what Luke is saying is, oh, look what Paul's doing. We can add that to our toolbox of methods to try to continue doing what we're doing. So they, they observed Paul and demons leaving as Paul uh, uh, proclaimed the name of Jesus. Then some, verse 13 again, of the itinerant Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So we don't know how many there were at this point. We're going to find out that among those seven, there are these others we're going to find out in verse 14. But so what they're doing is they're seeing Paul basically declaring Jesus and driving the Lord's using Paul's words to drive demons out of people. They see that happening, and they decide we are going to do the same thing. And so they, they go to seemingly demon-possessed people and say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom, the, whom Paul proclaims. Interesting. In other words, it's not about their relationship with Jesus. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, but they are recognizing that Paul has something that they don't have, and so they think they can conjure it up or just have it by saying the name as if there's some sort of special latent power just in that those, what, five letters, J-E-S-U-S, -S, Jesus. And so they're trying to do what Paul was doing, in effect, without a relationship with Jesus. Now, that's more of the backstory. The real focus is on 14 and following. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Skeva or Seva, depending on how you pronounce it, were doing this. So they may seemingly be part of these um, itinerant Jewish exorcists, um, although they 
most likely were based there in Ephesus, and, and this guy, Skeva or, or Seva, was a high priest there in uh, Ephesus, most likely. And so they decide, they decide that, um, that the best thing they could do is try to do the same thing Paul's doing. That's exactly what they do. Um, and it's interesting what happens as they do this. Excuse the cat, please. In any case, as they try to cast out the demons, as these seven sons try to cast out demons by trying to do what, what Paul was doing, verse 15, the evil spirit responds, that is, in a person. The evil spirit, the demonic presence within this person responds to them as they say i adjure you by the name of jesus whom paul proclaims or by the by the by the jesus who paul proclaims he responds to them says several things he says he says first jesus i know secondly in verse 15 and paul i recognize and thirdly the question but who are you interesting statements because the demon is interacting with them, and, and what he says about them, he obviously sets up a, a complete contrast between Jesus and Paul, firstly, and these seven uh, uh, Jews who are exorcists and trying to cast out demons. That's not Paul's goal. Paul's goal is not to cast out demons. His goal is something different that we're going to find out a little later. So it's interesting what the demons say to these seven people, these seven sons. First thing he says is, Jesus I know. And it's an interesting, the word for Jesus I, I know and Paul I um, recognize. Those words are two different words. And it's interesting the words he chooses. Uh, the, the demon, first of all, says, Jesus I know. And the word that, that, that the demon uses, speaking through this demon-possessed man, is Jesus I have knowledge about. I have Knowledge of who Jesus is, the demon says. I get it. I know who he is. It kind of ties back to what James says. They, they know and they fear. So the demon says, I know. I have data about Jesus. I have enough data about Jesus that I know who he is. And the implication is that they know who he is power-wise, authority-wise over him. So the demon, first of all, recognizes Jesus I know. The demon then says, and Paul I recognize. The word he uses for recognize is different. Uh, and it's interesting in its difference when he says, Paul I recognize. What he's saying is, I have knowledge about him, which kind of has the same idea. I have knowledge of Jesus. But when he says, Paul I recognize is greater, it's almost at a greater level than Jesus I know. When he says, Paul I recognize the demon saying, I also have knowledge of Paul, but I know why my knowledge of Paul informs me about why he does what he does. That's the idea of the word uh, when he says, Paul, I recognize. We actually have a word that comes out of the direct word that is used here. It's called epistemology, the study of knowledge or where, what is our source of knowledge is the word epistemology. The word he uses here is that word. And so what the demon is actually saying about Paul is, not only do I know Paul, but I know why Paul thinks the way he thinks. I know why Paul uh, does what he does. I know why Paul says what he says. I know Paul's reason for living. And of course, the implication is, Jesus I know, Paul, I know, and I also know why he does what he does and his reason for living because it is about this other one that I know, Jesus. So there's a very strong interaction between the Jesus I know and the Paul I recognize statement. Paul I recognize is I know him because he knows Jesus, and Jesus is the reason for why he's doing all that he's doing. Jesus is his mode of operation, his reason for all that he's doing. But then he throws that word but in there. The demon throws in the word but here as an absolute contrast between Jesus and Paul 
when he says, but who are you? He asks the seven sons of Sceva. Interesting question. Jesus, I know. I understand. I have the data about Jesus. In other words, I know he's the Messiah. I know he, is, he, has, he has all authority, Matthew 28. I know that he is su the supreme being. I know that he's God. And Paul, I know, and not only do I know who he is and what he's doing, but I know why he's doing it, Jesus. But when I come to you, I don't know you because you are not connected to the one you're proclaiming. That's, in effect, what the demon is saying. You're talking like you are connected to Jesus. You're talking like there's some sort of connection, but there's no connection. It doesn't mean that the, that the demon's looking at these seven sons and saying, um, I know nothing about you. It's more of, who are you because you're not like Paul? Who are you because you're not like the one that Paul's about? And so who are you to think, that's the implication, who are you to think that you can wield the name of Jesus? The name, the word in your lips has no power, no authority. Whereas when Paul speaks, because verse 11, God's doing these extraordinary things through him. When he speaks, demons must leave here at Ephesus. When you speak, demons don't leave. Something dramatically different happens. When you speak, what happens? After he says, but who are you? Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering them all, uh, or mastering all of them and overpowering them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Interesting storyline there. Paul speaks, demons leave. Paul speaks, people get healed. This other, these other four or seven people speak, and what happens? When they speak, unlike what's happening under Paul's ministry by the power of God, when these seven people speak, the demon speaks. The demon doesn't leave, the demon speaks. And when the, when the seven people speak, not only does the demon not leave the, the person who's possessed, and not only does the demon speak, but the demon does what? He, unlike when Paul speaks by the authority of God and with the working of God through him, where the demons are absolutely impotent and can't stay in this, this person or that person, when these seven speak, the demon becomes super powerful or supernaturally powerful. He speaks and then becomes supernaturally powerful. It says he leaps on them. And notice, there's seven of them. He masters every last one of them. How much did he master them? How much did he whip them? Well, it says he absolutely overpowered them, so much so that they fled out of that house. And not only did they run away, it wasn't a running away in fear, it was a running away because they were totally thrashed. And then when they ran away, they were so totally thrashed that they were bloodied and naked. Every single one of them had their clothes ripped off of them. Their, body was, their bodies were, were torn up, and they took off running. Why? That's the question. Why? And the answer is because it's not about a name. I know that sounds strange to a lot of Christians, but it's not about a name. You know, we talk about there's power in the name of Jesus. But the power is God doing extraordinary things, extraordinary miracles. And he's doing it in the Lord's name. But when we understand the term in the Lord's name, just like the scriptures tell us to pray in the Lord's name, the idea of praying in the Lord's name is not because it's some sort of mantra that somehow taps into the power of the Almighty. Quite to the contrary, the, the idea of in Jesus' name in our prayer, and, and, and as it's saying here, he's, he is ministering in the name of Jesus, the idea is not so much that somehow it forces God to do amazing things, because we cannot move God's hand that way. 
The idea of in his name is the idea of is for his glory, for the spreading of his fame. In other words, when we pray in Jesus' name, we're praying, it's, we're, we're praying whatever we're praying for God's glory. When Paul is ministering in the name of Jesus in 11 and 12, what's happening is he's doing this ministry. He's involved in this ministry for the spreading of Jesus' name, for the spreading of Jesus' fame throughout his world. Was that what the Jewish exorcists were doing? Was that what the seven sons of Sceva were doing? No. Were they claiming the name of Jesus? Yes. Was it effective? Not the way they wanted it to be effective. Not even close. Why? Because it wasn't for Jesus' name. It wasn't for the spreading of the fame of Jesus. It was for, for spreading the fame of the exorcists. In this case, more specifically, these seven were doing it for the spreading of their own fame or for the spreading of their name so that people would look to them and look up to them. Paul, on the other hand, had the same perspective that John the Baptist had. He must increase and I must decrease. That was Paul's perspective throughout the scriptures. And so the result was that the demon became extraordinarily powerful and conquered all seven and drove them out of the house naked and bloodied and wounded. Well, what's the results of this? Because now 17 and following is where we get into the real meat of the story. That's all color. That's all driving it to the point of 17 and following. This is important stuff, but, but it, it is just establishing the groundwork so that we can understand 17 and following. Because what happens next, verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Verse 17 is like the key, one of the, one of the absolute keys of this text, because 18 and following explain or put skin on what's taking place in 17. And if you're thinking at all about our previous studies in the book of Acts, when we get into Acts 1917, uh, and we read again, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, it should cause the reader of verse 17 to remember something very important in the book of Acts earlier. It is absolutely crucial that we think back, is there any other place in the book of Acts where the statement is made, and fear fell upon them all? And the answer to that is yes. And the, as a matter of fact, the first time that it shows up in the book of Acts is in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, we are introduced to two people, Ananias and Sapphira, people of the church, people who claim to be believers. And these two people are looking at the rest of the church and they're seeing the people selling their belongings and giving it to the church to distribute um, to the poor. There was no requirement. It wasn't demanded. It wasn't commanded in the scriptures. But they saw everybody else doing it and they joined in. And they decided to keep some of it for themselves. When they brought it to Paul, they said, yeah, that's all of it. When, or Peter, I'm sorry. And then Peter said, is this all, everything? And they said, yes. They could have said, no, this is, we're keeping 30%. We're giving 70%. Everything would have been fine. But they said, yes, and they lied. They were separate from one another, as you know the story. So one dies, and then after the, he, the body's taken out and buried, the next one comes in, the wife comes in, and she says the same thing, lies, and Peter says, you've lied not to man but the Holy Spirit. Boom, she's dead too, and she gets taken out and buried. The very next statement is, great fear fell on all the people. When God moves, that's what happens. When God moves and demonstrates himself, exhibits himself in power, the result is great fear falls on the people. It's universal. Why? Well, the reason why is because what's exposed in Acts chapter 5, what's exposed in Acts chapter 19, and many other places, is, and most of Jesus' ministry as well, is this. 
God is holy, I'm not. Or to put it a different way, God is God, and I'm not. And so what happens when God displays his power, what happens is great fear falls on the people. And that's what happens here. The people see these people running through town naked, and they know why it happened. And it spread like wildfires all through the town to both Jews and Greeks. And the ramifications of it immediately are as great fear fell on them all. Them all who? Jews and Greeks, the people in town. Great fear of what? Great fear of God and his power. Now, some of that fear we're going to find out is fear that leads to repentance and believing. And some fear is just fear and there's no repentance and believing, which will demonstrate it more next week, Lord willing. <clears throat> but you, so you notice again, verse 18 or verse 17, fear falls on them and it says, and the name of the Lord was extolled. The name of the idea of the name of the Lord is extolled. It's trumpeted. It's proclaimed. It's shouted from the housetops. It's being spread like wildfire by some people, not just Paul, it's others as well. The name of Jesus is being extolled, it's being proclaimed, it's being magnified. Jesus' fame is being spread throughout Ephesus. And, it, and it, from here on, 18 to 20, it starts, uh, what, what Luke does, is he begins to put the skin on what that looks like, that the name of the Lord Jesus is extolled. And that is that it's being spread. Verse 18, it says, Also many of those who are now believers... Interesting how Luke words that, who are now believers, which means that they weren't believers before. And the implication of the way in which Luke writes this is because of both what Paul has been proclaiming, how the, the, the extraordinary miracles have been happening by God through Paul's hands, combined with the exact opposite that happened to the seven sons of Sceva. Verse 18, and many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. That's a very interesting statement. And we need to stop on 18. It's going to continue into verse 19, but I want to stop on verse 18 first. You'll notice in 18, <clears throat> there are now believers that weren't believers before, and the ramification of their believing is extraordinary. Well, maybe extraordinary is the wrong term. It should be expected. <clears throat> the ramifications of their believing is what? They are confessing and divulging their practices. You know what? You know what, what Luke is recording here? He's recording first justification. They come to faith in Christ. God uses these events, verses 11 through 17, to bring some people to faith in Christ. The spirits at work in some people, they come to faith. The ramifications of them coming to faith is what? They immediately begin responding and having for the first time in their lives responses of faith. What are those responses of faith? They are, and the implication here again is they are publicly confessing and publicly divulging their practices. Boy, is that radical today. These people are coming together with other new believers, and they are doing what? They're standing up publicly and saying, I have sinned in this way or that way or another way. They're confessing their sins, divulging their practices. They're telling, they're declaring, this is how I am a sinner. And this is what Jesus has saved me from. And when it says they're confessing and divulging, the idea of confessing and divulging is another term, a, a descriptive term for another term used in Scripture, repentance. What we see here in 18 is these new believers are coming before the church and they are repenting. They are repenting of their sinful practices. Now I know, 
verse 18, remember we saw the descriptive passages in 11 and 12, what Paul is doing is descriptive, and we declared that it's merely descriptive, it's color of the story, and it's not prescribed anywhere else, commanded anywhere else. We come to 18, and we see another description, don't we? And the description is they're confessing and divulging their practices. But what's interestingly different about this description is this description is elsewhere prescribed. So this is a description of prescription elsewhere. What is prescribed? Commands. We're commanded to do what? To repent, to confess, to repent of our sin. And it is interesting. It's not just here. It is commanded elsewhere, James chapter 5 and other places where confession of sin publicly is very, very common. We don't do that today very often. Oftentimes today we confess privately between us and God. Maybe if I sinned against somebody else, I'll just confess to them, but we don't ever confess it publicly. But here they're confessing and divulging publicly their practices. And the implication of confessing and, and, and divulging is a turning away from, because that's what repentance is. Oftentimes I hear people say repentance is just a change of mind. No, it's a change of mind with an accompanying change of direction. Change of mind. I, I did consider this valuable. I now consider something else valuable. I no longer consider that valuable, which by implication means I must cling to what is valuable and reject what is not valuable. That's what repentance is, and that's what we find happening here. They are confessing and divulging their practices. They're, they're presenting it and turning from it. How much do we know? Do we have any other data that they're actually turning away from these things? Yes, verse 19. And a number of those who had practiced the magic arts or magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So is there evidence that this is true repentance? Yes, they're confessing and divulging the, the practices publicly, but then the not only are they confessing and divulging, but they're also bringing um, those uh, books that aided them in practicing their magic arts. They brought them together and burned them in the sight of all. Interestingly enough, that doesn't sound like it's in the sight of the church. It sounds like it's being, they're being burned in the sight of everyone in town, because that's the all that's referred to earlier. These are being burnt publicly, confession public, divulging public, and destruction of these past things public. That's what it says. Now, it's really easy when we read the description to get really tight into the description and miss the point. And so we want to pause in 18 and 19 so we don't miss the point. Certainly what we see with this group in Ephesus they are confessing and divulging their practices, and these practices are connected to the magic arts. So it's connected to this exorcism stuff and this, this demonic worship and all the rest of these things. There's no question. We can't miss that here. That's what they're doing. But it, it, begs, the greater, the, it, it begs us to look at the greater sweep, the real point here is not to focus on what the specifics are of what they're getting rid of as if, well, if I'm into the occult, then I need to publicly confess and divulge it and then burn it all and get rid of it. That's what I need to do. But I'm not into the occult, so therefore I don't have to do that. So this is still more just description. No. This was their issue. Their issue was the occult. They were caught up in the occult and the magic arts. They confessed and divulged it and burned it all, got rid of it all, cleaned house. For what purpose? Because for the first time in their life, they are now enthralled with the name of Jesus. Now, for the first time, they're enthralled with their Redeemer, Jesus. They understand for the first time that their Redeemer, Jesus, stood in their place for them on the, at the cross. They understand now for the first time that they've been given his righteousness and all this else has nothing to offer them in comparison to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. All that has nothing to offer them in comparison to the one who has all authority, all power. 
All that has nothing to offer them in light of the one who has conquered sin and Satan and death. All that has nothing to offer them in comparison of the one who has rescued them from darkness and brought them to life, who has taken them from death to light, who has promised that he's going to return for them. We could go on and on. All in contrast, in their minds, because they've been regenerated by the Spirit, they have been saved, that has nothing for them. Why? Because Jesus has set them free. The, the chains are off, and they're seeing those other things in light of Jesus. Now, the point is, for you and I, it may not be a cult. In fact, it most likely won't be perfect occult stuff. It may be any number of other things. It could be anything, our jobs, our status, our finances. It could be anything, our health, whatever it may be. Our freedom. It could be anything. What these people are doing is they are taking the thing that once was important to them and in light of the glory of Jesus Christ, they're looking at it and they're saying, this is firstly in contrast and opposed to the things of Christ, but secondly, it has no light. All light is with Jesus. I just want Jesus. This must go. And they repent of that for this. When we work our way through all this color and we recognize that the real point is, why were they into the occult? Because they thought it, it did something for them. They found value there. They found worth there. They found purpose there. They found hope there. They found their role there. But all of it was, was false. And yet they could never see it as false until they were in the light of Jesus. Until God brought them into the light. And when they, brought, when they were brought into the light by the Holy Spirit at work in them, you know what they found? They found the same thing that Paul found. All the things in Philippians 3 that he once found valuable to him Paul says, I now find it all dung, refuse, for the sake of Christ. I encourage you to read that passage in Philippians chapter 3. We won't go there today, except for to reference it. What happened with the people in Ephesus is they looked at what they once considered valuable, but now, for the first time in their life, they're looking at that stuff in light of their Redeemer, their King, their Savior, their older brother who stood in their place and gave them his righteousness. And the comparison contrast between what they once held valuable and what they now, by the power of the Spirit, hold valuable, they discovered that all of that was done. And so what did they do? They confessed, divulged the practices, brought their books regarding the magical arts. They brought them together and they burned them in the sight of all. They declared before all, Jesus is their soul king. You know what they were really declaring? They were declaring what Paul declared in Romans chapter 11, verse 36. All things are from him, all things are to him, or all things are from him, through him, and to him. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. What they were declaring is that doesn't fit into the kingdom of God. That doesn't belong in the kingdom of God. That cannot exist in my life and Jesus be in my life. They're opposed. Now, it's an obvious opposition. The, the things of the evil, evil one, the things of, of darkness, 
versus the things of light, that's an obvious opposition. Is it not? It's an obvious opposition. How could, how could we practice a cult and practice worshiping Jesus together, right? Yeah, you can't. We all know that. Jesus himself said we cannot serve. In his case, he talked about money. Interestingly enough, you cannot serve God and money or mammon. Can't do both. And the point that Jesus is trying to make is that although when it comes to the occult, it's an obvious, there's no way that the two can fit together in any world. It just can't happen. But when Jesus drags money into it, money and Jesus can fit into the same world. I mean, Jesus did pull a coin out of, out of a fish's mouth. And he did say, pay unto Caesar, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus never demonstrates himself to be anti-money anywhere. So it's kind of much more subtle than a cult. But the principle is still the same. You see, in a cult, there's no way the two can come together because they have absolutely nothing in common because Jesus and the, dark, and the, and the, and the kingdom of darkness are, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness are absolutely opposed. But money can be part of the kingdom of darkness and money can be part of the kingdom of God. It can be both, which is why God talks about giving offerings. Because money can function within, I'm just using money as an example, money can function within the kingdom of God and bring glory to God. But you remember what we just quoted in Romans 11.36, all things are from him, through him, to him. To him be glory forever, amen. And that's the point, is it's all, it all exists for the glory of God. There's certain things that cannot in any way bring glory to God. The occult cannot bring glory to God. Money can. Jobs can. Relationships can. Our health can. Sickness can. Our property, our houses, our cars can bring glory to God. Food can bring glory to God. But they all can stand opposed to God too, based upon why are we after those things? What is in our heart to be after those things? Are they viewed as all things are from him, through him, to him, to him be glory forever, amen? Or do we see more the idea that God is, or Jesus, God, is, and this is, and you know we don't ever see the connection between them. We don't ever see this having a role in the kingdom of God. Or seldom see it in a connection with the kingdom of God. What these people in Ephesus are doing is they're saying that is not for the glory of God. Therefore, it must be confessed and divulged and burned, destroyed, removed. That's the idea of burned, removed. It, and it begs the question in my life and in your life, the various aspects of our lives, the various things that are in our life, are they in existence in our life for the glory of God or not? Do they exist there expressly to bring glory to God? Are we in pursuit of the various intricate parts of our lives for because we view Jesus for who he really is, we just want this to glorify God? God has blessed me with, with this vehicle. I just want to glorify God with it. God has blessed me with this house. I just want to glorify God with this. He's blessed me with this money. I just want to glorify God with this. Is that the way we think about what God has brought into our lives? Or do we see them as like standalones? They may occasionally touch on the, the kingdom of God, but for the most part, they exist there for me. If so... They need to be confessed, and, and it needs to be divulged, and it should be destroyed. I'm not saying we destroy our money or our houses. That's what I'm talking about, because they can be used for God's glory. These things were destroyed because they couldn't be. The point is not, you better do this so that you love God. The point is much more subtle and much more important than that. The reason why we cling to the things we have for ourselves is because we don't know God as we ought to. 
we don't know Jesus as we ought to, we have not tasted and seen that he is better than those. We say he's good, but he's not as good as that, which is why we see it apart from him. Because if we, if we tasted and saw the Lord was good, and the idea is ultimately good, then what we would do is we would say, if he's ultimately good, then those by themselves are not good. That would be the natural response of someone who the Spirit's working in. And so my, my hope and my goal is to see them as for the glory of God. And I always get the question, yeah, I hear you, Steve, but, but how can I have blank to the glory of God? And my answer is always the same. I don't know. For you, I don't know. The problem is we don't even ask that question often. We don't even ask it. Why? Because our lives are not consumed with knowing the one who loves us. Our lives aren't focused on the one who loves us. But as, as our lives are focused on the one who loves us, as our, as our minds are focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, unless you think that that's something that we're not called to, Hebrews chapter 12. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And it goes on with that list, and it concludes in that direct passage by saying, so that you don't lose heart and get distracted and fall away, fall aside, get distracted and chase after other things. That's the idea. The question is not, ultimately, or at least immediately, how do I do that? The question is, am I even, is that even part of my life to think that way? Is it even part of my life to be after the glory of God in the little intricacies and parts and stuff of my life? Is it even on the radar screen for me? For example, we pray when we eat. And we ask God to bless his food to our bodies and give us the strength that food certainly brings, right? It brings energy. But do we even think about how am I eating this food to the glory of God? Do we even think, does it even cross our minds that this, even in the process of eating, is supposed to be for the glory of God? Whether I eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. That's what 1 Corinthians says. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Are we even thinking about that at all in all the various intricacies of our lives? You see, if we're not even wrestling with that, it's because our mind's not on Jesus. Our minds are not fixed on Jesus. Because if our minds are fixed on Jesus, we'd be asking, what's this have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with Jesus? What does something else have to do with Jesus? And for these people, it's exactly what they're asking. As they looked at Jesus and believed in Jesus, their immediate response is, what does that have to do with this? What does the occult and my magic arts and my books have to do with Jesus? And their answer is, nothing. And then as they examined it further, they had to say, what could it have to do with Jesus? And the answer was, nothing. And so what did they do? They confessed divulged, and burned. And so what was the ramifications of all that? The ramifications of all that shows up in verse 20. So, or in the word so there is there importantly because it's saying in light of all that, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Interesting the way Luke wraps this one up this section anyway. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. The word of the Lord spread. It increased. That doesn't mean there's more words at that point. It means that it was increasing in people's lives. And it began to prevail mightily in people. Why did the word prevail mightily in people? Why did it continue to increase? Well, it you could argue it continued to increase because people burned their, their magic books. 
and they confessed and divulged their practices, verse 18 and 19. But I don't think that's right. When it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, the so is not referencing the actual activities of these people, and it's not even rec or ac um, uh, referencing the miracles that Paul was doing. What it's referencing, verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily, what it's referencing is the first two words of verse 11, or first four words, I'm sorry, and God was doing, which is nothing more than saying, and God was at work. As a result of God being at work, miracles were happening. As a result of God being at work, people were being saved. As a result of God being at work, fear was falling upon all. As a result of God being at work, people were being convicted of their sin. As a result of God being at work and God exposing himself into people's lives, people were confessing and divulging their practices. As a result of God being at work, people were bringing their books together, their magic art books, and burning them. It's all about God being at work in people. And when God is at work in people, something happens. What happens when God is at work in people? The word of the Lord continues to increase in those people. And the word of God, use, being used by the spirit of God, continues to prevail mightily. And this prevailing mightily means that more and more people were doing what? We're confessing and we're divulging and burning or moving more and more into the worship of God, into the light and worshiping the God of light. You know, oftentimes I, I hear Christians, people who claim to be believers say, you know, Steve, I, I just, you know, I, I'm a Christian. I believe in God, but I don't see much happening in my life. I don't see much going on. And I want more, more going on, but I don't see much going on. You know what my answer always is? It's always seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek him. If you seek him, you will find him. If you seek him with all your heart, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. And the rest of that in Hebrews chapter 12. And all those are just examples we wonder why God's not at work in us, but if we really looked at our lives, you know what we would find? We'd find we're not seeking him. We're not calling on him while he is near. We're not fixing our eyes upon him. We're not drinking deeply at the fountain of living water. We're splashing occasionally. In the fountain. We're calling upon him when our life is difficult. Or when people we care about's lives are difficult. We <clears throat> remember him during our devotions, if we have devotions, in a church. But we don't seek him. And we wonder why it doesn't seem like He's mighty in us. Well, because we're not seeking him, we're seeking something else or a group of something else's. And I'm reminded that God says he will not share. He's a jealous God. He will not share his glory with another. If we are looking to other things to provide what God has said he will provide, and so we cling to those things, we're looking for the glory in those. We're looking for the hope in those. We're looking for the fulfillment in those. We're looking for the answer in those. And that's no different from this that we see in this passage. And I would argue that ultimately when we're looking in those things, we're a whole lot more close to the occult than we realize. That's where we are. 
Because if, if the stuff of our life is not about the kingdom of God, it is by default about the kingdom of darkness. Inevitably. But when the Spirit works in people, and when the evidence of the Spirit is actually at work in people, then what happens is the word of the Lord continues to increase in our lives. And as it continues to increase by the Spirit, the word of God begins to prevail mightily in our lives. It's like the more we confess, the more we want to confess. The more that we... Um, divulge the more we want to divulge the more we we destroy the stuff of the kingdom of darkness the more we want to destroy the kingdom the stuff of the kingdom of darkness and so as a result if i may i said i wasn't going to but i'm going to go over to philippians chapter three we will find ourselves like paul in philippians chapter three saying um Indeed, starting in verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing G Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth. Notice those two words, surpassing worth. Everything is compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. It goes on, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ. You notice the exclusion there? I count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Implication is pretty strong there. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know him, and that word know is intimately know him, in the most intimate way possible, that I may know him, and that I may know the power of his resurrection, which is referring to the power of victory over those things. I've been set free from them all. That I may know, intimately know the power of his resurrection in my life and may, as a result, share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that, in, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You get the sense for Paul that the word of God is continuing to increase in him and prevailing mightily, which is what he said uh, in Ephesians 1 as well. I am confident of this very thing. He who began the good work in you will continue to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. The, it, it will continue to be mighty in you as you grow in Christ if you're truly saved. Cling to him. It's the answer. The answer is not, oh, I got to burn these things and destroy those things, and I got to do this, do that, do something. No, the answer is cling to Him, know Him, focus on Him, fix our eyes on Him, drink uh, at the fountain of living water, cling to Jesus, know Jesus, learn of Jesus, and find Him more valuable than anything else. You will discover Him to be so if you're a believer. And when you do, you're going to start to say, what's this? It's like a continuous spiritual house cleaning because you're comparing it with that. You're saying that doesn't fit with what I know of Jesus. And so you're continually at war, cleaning house for the glory of God and seeking him and seeing things that are holding you back from seeing him. So the answer is seek him. So as we go from our study this morning, I just encourage you and exhort you. As he prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, I pray that they will know you, the Father, and know the Son who was sent. That is the answer. Always has been, always will be. Because Paul said in Romans, it's not the one who wills or works, but the one who shows mercy. All our works will never bring us closer to God. All your Self-denial will not bring you closer to God. All you're trying to do this, that, or something else, just like it didn't help the Pharisees, will not help you or I. The only thing that will help us is knowing Jesus. And even that is by the Spirit of the Lord at work. And so what we need to do is cry out to God, open our eyes and help us to see. And seek.
And God tells us that if we call out to him, he will not cast us out. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us as we go through from here and move on into the rest of our day that we will not forget. I pray that you will help us to be people who are hot after you because your spirit's at work in us. Help us to not be people who, who merely play a game and do things. Even do the things you say to do. Help us not merely to be those people because in that day we will hear said, depart from me, I never knew you. Because it's not about the doing. It is about the knowing. Doing always flows from the knowing. And so help us to know you. Glorify yourself in life. Change us. Open our eyes to see you. And in opening our eyes to see you, help us to see the things that are keeping us from you. And Lord, I pray that you will give us a holy passion to know you. A supernatural passion to know you and love you and worship you that only you can give us. Glorify yourself in us. In your name I pray. Amen. Have a good day.